always got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. The summer of championships is drawing to a close. A terrific European championships wrapped up in Munich on Sunday. We're going to break that down. Jakob Ingebrigtsen swept the 1500 and the 5000 meters. Karsten Warholm and Marcel Jacobs are back on top. And Femke Boll has pulled off an incredible golden triple in the 400, 400 hurdles and the 4x4 relay. Down on Cape Cod, Kira D'Amato became the first American woman to win the Falmouth Road Race since 2011, while Ben Flanagan won his third title in the last four editions on the men's side. Kira D'Amato also says she's going to Berlin this fall to break the American record in the marathon. We'll discuss that and why she may have chosen Berlin over Chicago. Plus, Chris Derrick of the Bowman Track Club has retired, and we have the exclusive interview on Let'sRun.com. And we've got a lot of big-time matchups on tap at the Lausanne Diamond League on Friday. We'll do a preview of that as well. This is Jonathan Galt. Weldon Johnson is on vacation, but back from vacation is the other co-founder of Let'sRun.com, the one and only Robert Johnson. Robert, you were missed last week. I know that we read on air there was one person that wasn't a fan of you, but I'm a big fan of yours. I know a lot of our listeners are a big fan of yours. It's good to have you back on the pod. Great to be back, John. Not only back from vacation, back from COVID, folks. I've survived it. <clears throat> I think I had a rebound case because I was testing positive for like 11 straight days. <sighs> Messed up the family's vacation. Grandparents didn't show. But I'm recording this from the grandparents' house, so we're on good terms now. Family's mended fences. And I'm excited to be here. I don't understand why Walton read an email from I know who it was. It was like my arch enemy in life. Well, not really, but I looked at this person's IP address before. Anyways, good to be here. Good to talk track. If you want to talk track with us, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, you can reach us on the phone. 844-LET'S-RUN. That's 844-538-7786. If you're new to the show, Let's Run It's really the only place in the world we're running is viewed as a competitive sport on a daily basis, not just a fitness activity. And we are the voice of the fans. I feel like in sports, everyone worries about the athletes and the owners, the governing bodies, but nobody cares about the fans. We do. Well, it was pretty good week to be a fan last week, Robert. If you're a fan, I'm not, I mean, I am by citizenship European, but I live in the United States. I, we follow American track and field more closely but most of the Americans, you know, they're not really racing very much last week because there's no Diamond Leagues, there's no domestic meets, really. We had the European Championships to get your track fix. This was one of the best track meets of the year. I loved it. I watched a bunch of it from Munich, held in the historic 1972 Olympia Stadion. It's one of those huge bowls. There's no sort of different tiers or anything like that. It's just one big circle. And they... Got it close to full a couple nights. I know Tuesday night with the 100-meter finals. We talked about that on the podcast last week. Weldon and I did. That was one of the best nights of the whole year. Then the weekend sessions, I mean, Sunday it was close to full as well, and we had some good races there. Men's 10,000, men's 800 finals on the final day. And Keely Hodgkinson also on Saturday winning gold for Great Britain in the 800 meters. So... I really enjoyed this meet, and one of the reasons I did 
you pointed this out in the week that was, Robert, terrific stat. 10 European athletes won individual gold medals at the World Championships in Eugene in July. And all 10 of them competed at the European Championships. That's what we need. When you get the best athletes competing at meets with actual stakes, it's really exciting and track and field feels like a real sport. And that's certainly what it felt like watching the races in Munich. Yeah, and that's in contrast to the Commonwealth Games, which also felt like a, a real track meet, but a lot of the Jamaicans sort of skipped that one, even though they won the world title. So it was good to see the big stars there. I mean, it's kind of interesting, yeah, like what makes it important. And I kind of wrote, it's a combination of how many stars showed up, what type of form they're in, and how much they care about winning. Well, here everybody showed up, at least the big stars, except for Safan Hassan. Um, what type of form they're in. You know they're in good form because they just had Worlds. And then how much they care about winning. <clears throat> Some of them may have cared more than others, but particularly with a big crowd, TV audience, medals at stake, most people are going to care. So it was wonderful. As compared to like when they had this in 2024, it's going to be a joke meet. I, and I remember recently, this used to be a, a, quad, a quadrennial, right? Every four years of championship. Now they have Europeans every two years. And when they did this a couple of years ago, I'm like, why are you going to have an Olympic year? No one's going to care. So in 2024, they're going to have it in June before the Olympics. It's going to be completely meaningless because a lot of people will skip it. Like people are going to just be focusing on the world. So if you're going to have it in 2024, you need to have it after the Olympics because then you've already done the marketing. Like the big names, if they happen to bother to show up again, you know, they're in form. You might show up just to watch the Olympic champion and you're good to go. But by putting the, I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but putting these two meets, the Commonwealth and Europeans after worlds was amazing this year because people were in great form and it's just the best time. They're not blowing. Some of them did could blow it off, but most of them showed up. Whereas I think if you put it before the Olympics, it's going to be not good at all. Oh, I totally agree. Cause this year people were getting excited for Munich and I'm like, well, We've seen these championships held in the years of a global championship. I'm thinking of Amsterdam 2016 or I think it was Helsinki 2012, wherever they had it. No one paid attention. I don't remember caring about those European championships at all. Whereas I do remember Zurich 2014 and Berlin 2018 being really exciting and lots of fans were into it. And that's because for the Euros, that is their biggest championship of the year. There was no global championship outdoors. So... Those were the meets that all of their top athletes focused on, which was pretty awesome. And you kind of had a mix here because this obviously wasn't the meet that all these athletes are peaking for, but they still showed up. And you even had Marcel Jacobs showing up. He wasn't 100% healthy at the Worlds. He withdraws before the semifinals in the 100. He comes to Euros and he can still feel like, okay, this wasn't the year I wanted, but he seemed pretty happy to get that win. Same with Carsten Warholm, not 100% at the World Championships, but he's in Munich. He wins the race. He's getting back towards his old old form. It was awesome. So I agree with you, Robert. This thing's going to happen in 2024 in Rome, and I, maybe Marcel Jacobs will show up because it is in Rome. But most of these athletes, we've seen it in the US. Like They, just, they get so locked in on the Olympics, they're not going to be showing up to you know, to Rome to worry about this big European championships. If any, even the slightest injury or anything like that, they're just going to skip it and focus all on the Olympics. So I think it's not too late. Can we, we haven't drawn up the diamond league schedule for 2024. Can we push this thing 
after the Olympics in 2024 and you've got Paris and Rome, that would be a great double, I think, for, for all these European athletes to do. And I think it would help propel the sport forward more than the current schedule. And for us Americans, we can have the NACAC championships right after. And everybody watches the NACACs. That was a joke, people. Not really sure how the NACACs and the Pan Ams differ. Weldon Johnson represented Team USA in the Pan Ams. But Pan Ams is all of the Americas. So South America, Central America, and North America. NACACs is only North American, Central American, and Caribbean. So basically no South America in NACACs. By the way, whoever found the Pan Am Games footage from 2003 featuring Weldon Johnson and the 10,000 from ESPN Deportes and put it up on YouTube, thank you. I've never seen that race. Weldon found out that he was racing a future New York City Marathon champion in there. And he went to the front early, folks, but dropped out with an injury. But it's up on YouTube. We'll link to that in the show notes. So, Robert, I know you're on vacation over the weekend. But did you get to see much of the European Championships? Any races stand out to you? Anything that really excited you from Munich? Well, that's a great question because when you were talking about this, I just wrote down kind of the events. And I was like, is John overplaying this? Like how big this meet was and how exciting? <clears throat> I mean, how many things did I really care about? And I was thinking about that. Distance-wise, you know, 800 through the – well, first of all, I didn't care about the marathons. But, you know, 800 through 10,000, which events did I care about? I mainly cared about what anything Jakob Ingebrigtsen was running in. To me, like he's a fascinating story. He's a big deal. He's probably the biggest person in distance running on the track, uh, on the men's side for sure. And, you know, Stefan Hassan's not there on the women's side. So I'm into watching him. So I made sure to watch his races. I watched the 5,000 live and then I tried to watch the 1500 live, but I missed it. And then I tried to like rewind it on YouTube without seeing the results. And I was afraid he lost. I, I was really into watching that. So I was into the men's 1500, the women's 800, just because I wanted to see how Keely Hodgson could she win. I didn't watch the men's 800, but I was into that just because Jake Whiteman was in there. And then the men's 5K. But other than that, did I care about the steeples, 10Ks? Nah, not really. Did you? No, I couldn't tell you the name of the men's steeplechase winner. I think his. He's from Finland, but yeah, it's it's about having the big athletes because they lend legitimacy to the event. And now, well, and I'll just say, enough showed up. I mean, like I was looking at women's five k. Gravdal, who's the Norwegian girl, was one like in the fourteen twenties. I don't think she even ran. Oh, she ran at least one event. I think she ended up dropping out of one of them in Munich, okay. but she she was there for sure. But yeah, Coco in the five k. I thought that was a good story. Kloster Halfen getting the win. She had a disappointing World Championships. Didn't even make the final, but. Sounded like she had COVID going in. Then she comes back. She gets the win. Comes from behind. Yasmin Chan, who won the 10K, looked like she was going to break everyone apart again. But Klosterhofen hangs on. And then she runs her down. And big last lap in front of the German fans. So that was fun. But yeah, like you said, like the women's steeple. I guess Luisa Gega of Albania, who did win the race. She's been having a good year. But she's not... The best in the world. There is quite a, a gap between, you know, Gedichu and Nora Gerudo and her. And so that's what interested me, Robert, is when you have the big stars like Jakob or Whiteman, who's a world champion now, or Hodgkinson. When it's one of the very best in the world and they're going up, you know, if they win, okay, I get to see their greatness. And if they lose, it's like, whoa, they got upset. So, and I don't know if I would call what happened to Whiteman an upset in the 800 because that's a pretty deep field. 
But he got beat by another guy who's won a global title this year, Mariano Garcia of Spain. And that was one of the races I thought was really exciting because it comes down to a home straight battle between those two. On the And Garcia got to the lead. He had the lead entering the final lap, and he basically was able to hang on the rail the whole time. Whiteman was a little further back, and it looked like he was just going to move up at around 200 to go, which is when he made that move both at Worlds and at Commonwealth in the 1500. And this time, Elliot Creston of Belgium actually went by him, and Whiteman couldn't respond quickly enough. He had to run a little extra distance on the final turn, and that kind of, I thought, was the deciding factor in the race. But it was really exciting. And what I really loved afterwards is the sportsmanship that they had between each other. Garcia went up to Whiteman you know, in the call room or wherever they were afterwards when they're getting their gear together with his ba- with his bib in hand. And Garcia has very limited English, but it was clear like he wanted to trade bibs. Whiteman hands his immediately. They do this big picture. And then at the end, Whiteman just says, you know, enjoy tonight. And I just thought that was great sportsmanship between two great athletes. And, you know, Whiteman's got to be pretty happy. I know he didn't win either Commonwealths or Euros, but to come away with obviously the gold medal at Worlds, that's, He's going to be celebrating that for the rest of his life. But then to get a bronze at Commonwealth and then a silver at Euros, that's a pretty great summer for him. So he'll be able to, he has plenty to celebrate as well. I think my internet cut out there, John, when you were describing what a great men's 800 it was. Hopefully our podcasting software caught that. But I mean, I know Whiteman's in this race, but the other guy is the world indoor champ. So that gives him some credibility. But I think he only made the semifinals of Worlds outdoors. So it's not like it was interesting to me. I was thinking, this is a Whiteman did though beat like the Robert guy who won the Paris Diamond League and whatnot. So I was still thinking that you know Whiteman is pretty fast, you know. So I think this is why he's lethal in the fifteen hundred is because he can run three thirty and he's got really good eight hundred meter speed. And that's why I was so into Ingebrigtsen because the five thousand. I mean, men's running is so competitive that there is doubt until basically all of these races are going to be decided in the last 200. I mean, men's distance running, and I don't want to come off as sexist, but this isn't the case really for women's distance running. It's going to come down to the last 200 almost every race. And you hear some, I heard, I remember hearing some of the commentators like, Inga Brinson hasn't dropped him. I'm like, when's the last time a dude has dropped another guy with a lap to go? Like that doesn't happen very often. Now, some of the women's races, it does happen. I mean, women's 5,000, the win that she won by like six seconds. Um, but, you know, Inga Britson beating somebody by over a second in the men's 1500 is a destruction, whereas that happens pretty often on the women's side. But, you know, you, you're in the 5,000, until he drops um, Couture, you know, in the last 100, you don't really know what's going to happen. But then when he wins it, you're like, well, of course he was going to win. But there's a reason why you watch the race. But I was really into the 1500 because ever since he lost, even before he lost, I thought he doesn't have good 800 meter speed. Is he vulnerable in championship in the hundreds? I wanted to see him practice trying to run in the pack, which I know he doesn't really like doing. Is, is his stride kind of long, John, or is he just better than everybody else? But like, I want to see him try to run in the pack and just blast everybody. Um, because when he went to the front briefly there for a minute, I'm like, wait a minute. It's very hard to lead. It's like a second a lap, but I'm like, is he going to win this? I'm like, yeah, he's going to win it because he did the same thing at worlds and he beat all the other Europeans by running from the front, except for Whiteman, who's not in this race. 
You know what I'm saying? Like third and fourth, we're not that close to him. So I'm like, he's going to beat Garcia Romo here, and he did. But I would have liked to see him try a different tactic. And what surprised me about the race was the winning time. Did it do 331? Wasn't that impressive? What, what was surprising to you about it? That you thought just Jakob should be able to run faster? Well, yeah, he's basically running the same race he did at, at Worlds, but not as fast. But is that just because... It was actually 332.76, so it was even slower than you than you remembered. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's maybe it's just a matter of when he decided to start picking it up. And also, the field's not quite as good. They're not quite as peaked for it. But I, I, I mean, it's, it's 1,500. I, I wasn't really focused too much on the time. So what do we want to see from Jakob the rest of the year? He's the late add to the LaSalle Diamond League this, this, this weekend, which is he's going to be running the 1,500. Against a stacked field, like like we got Hoare, we got Chariot. Yeah, I don't know how much more I can really ask of Jakob. I don't think he's been racing, you know, he raced doubled at Worlds, doubled at Euros, g- going after a world record. I don't know. A, I'm not sure if he's even in shape to do it. And B, you know, that's, that's a really tough thing to ask. So I feel like that's fine if he wants to push that to next year. I just think, yeah, run Lausanne, run the Diamond League final, and see if anyone can beat him. That's kind of, that's, like, Jakob has done what I want him to do. He's raced world indoors, world outdoors he doubled, Euros he doubled, he went after a fast mile time in Oslo, he got a world record indoors. This is what we want from our superstars, is that they're racing a ton, they're trying They're trying doubles at the championships. It's kind of interesting to compare, actually, Jakob and Sidney McLaughlin, they're both teenage phenoms from a young age breaking records on their way up and their different their approaches to the sport are quite different sydney will go all in and she'll be amazing at the championships and she always delivers she barely races on the circuit at all Jakob does everything he races all year round he'll probably show up to Eurocross and win that as well like he did last year john i, I have to warn you about your hidden sexism and you, you just dead named somebody when i was on vacation or maybe it was yesterday her name is not Sydney McLaughlin, and this is a very controversial thing to to refer to people by names they used to go by, but are no longer going by. I know you can be fired from certain jobs. What is her new name, John? <laughs> so you're issuing this correction, and then you're like, wait a minute, I've forgotten what her new name is. Please remind me. Well, you're lucky I did read the LA Times article, which explained the situation. Her new name is Sydney McLaughlin Lavrone. That's her married name. It's hyphenated. And that is what she is choosing to go by moving forward. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Robert, for any microaggressions I may have caused. Clearly, you are very upset about this subject. Sydney McLaughlin Lavrone is the name. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just trying to make fun of the whole dead naming controversy. Well, you shouldn't be making fun of it. Like, this is a legitimate thing. People do feel like actual people who are dead named, actual transgender people do feel bad about this. And I can understand why. So I just think I don't. I don't think you should. Bruce Jenner won the decathlon gold medal. That's a fact. Sidney McLaughlin won a world record. So sometimes people are going to get the names confused. If you get married, your name changes. When married people get their name wrong, people don't freak out. When a transgender person is referred to their old name, people shouldn't freak out. Now, if someone's doing it just to be a dick, hey, that's not cool. That's what I'm saying, and I think you're pushing up against that line. You're trying to, like, if you're doing it intentionally, you shouldn't be doing it intentionally. I, that was, I mean, I, obviously what I was doing is 
I don't even know her name, but if I want to refer to Jern Eastwood's career as, as a male distance runner, I think I should be allowed to use her old name. And that's just between me. But every day, other courtesy, I'm going to extend the courtesy to people. Uh, if you want to be called she, even though you're really a he, I'll do that as a common courtesy. But I don't, John's rolling his eyes, so we'll move on to a, a better topic. But so how do we even come up with Sidney McLaughlin? What, what, what I was comparing her to Jakob, and you were saying, like, what more can oh. we ask from Jakob? What well, more do you want to see? No. I've seen pretty much everything I want no. to. He's raced a kidding? lot. What, what do you want to see? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Let me pull up the results here. This is the best. He's What is he? He told us in Eugene. He shocked the world. He said, I'm a 5,000-meter runner. Guess what? He hasn't run a 5,000 on the circuit this year. He ran the track meet in the U.S., 1302. He runs Worlds, 1309. He runs Euros, 1321. I want to see the best 5,000-meter runner on the planet take a crack at the 5,000 on the circuit or with rabbits. So there isn't one in Lausanne this weekend. Please tell me. I think there is one next week in Brussels that Grant Fisher might be going to. It says there's a 3,000, 5,000 that's going to be in Brussels next week. They don't have the actual meet schedule with all the events on it published on their website yet. But according to the allocation of disciplines, there's either a men's 3,000 or 5,000. I really hope the idea of getting rid of the 5,000, nobody cares about the 3,000. It's one of the dumbest ideas that I've ever heard. We need a 5,000 and we need it in Brussels. Fisher can show up. Britson can show up, etc. Because look at the diamond league final, which is a two day meet. The 5,000 is a street 5,000, or, or maybe it's a fake tracks 5,000. Just they're not going to run as fast. I, I, I'd i rather him run the mile there, 1,500 there. So I'd like to see him take a good crack at the 5,000 this year. I mean, he ran in the 124 days last year. What can he do this year? But, yeah, he, he is great for the sport because he races so often. So I, I just was really into that. I wanted to see the tactics. And speaking of which, I saw this development, and if you're a podcast listener and you know where this was, please let us know, Robert at Let's Run.com or 844-LET'S-RUN. Recently, I thought it was the Commonwealth Games somewhere. I clicked on the results, and it says, like, see race analysis, and normally that goes to a PDF, like in the World Athletic Site, and it shows you the 100-meter splits or 200-meter splits or whatever. And one of these races, and maybe it was on Twitter, they must have using the chips or something, it showed you the distance that everybody ran in the 1500 or the 800. And it was amazing. It was like 800 meters and it was like 804, 807. I don't know how accurate this is, but this is, I'm kind of a little bit, well, I'm very, also very excited. I'm also a little disappointed because this is going to kill my analysis of these races when I get up my telestrator on YouTube and show you how Johnny Gregoric ran too much distance and why it wasn't good tactics. Because, but it's going to be fascinating. You're going to see, okay, this person ran an extra five meters and they lost by half a second. If they hadn't done that, they probably would have won. So I want to know where I saw that. If you know, email me, Robert, or let's run because I thought that was pretty cool to see if, you know, Jakob's going to be vulnerable in the 15 moving forward. Yeah, that would be interesting. Robert, do you remember Ventolin, the guy who used to post on the message boards and he'd make all these predictions about like what people could have run if they had perfect drafting and they ran the minimum distance? He's basically disappeared from Let's Run over the last few years. I wonder if that would inspire him to make a comeback and he'd be like, he'd use all this data from every race and say, oh, if he run exactly 800 meters, he could have done this and that sort of thing. A um, couple other things from Euros. Femke Bowl was my performer of the meet. Wins the flat 400, 49-44 on the women's side on August 17th. Two days later, she comes up for the 
400 hurdles, wins that by almost two seconds in 52.67. And then in the 4x4, she helps the Netherlands to gold in that. So she is a triple gold medalist in the European Championships. I mean, that's just what we want. Like we've said, Robert, we want our best athletes challenging themselves, pushing the limits. No woman had ever completed this double at the Euros. Bull does it, and she runs super fast in the flat 400 to boot. Really incredible meet by her, and it's just exciting. Like, you have this at the Olympics where your biggest stars, they're running multiple events. Like, this is why people get excited about Michael Phelps because he's on their TV every night. And this is how you become a star for, like, Femke Bull is you're on Dutch TV three or four times in the course of a week. People are seeing you. They're putting a face to the name. That's how you get superstars in this sport is by doubling up or tripling up. Wait, wait, wait. John, you must be making something up. It, it, she didn't run Euros. She couldn't have done well at Euros. This is a woman that ran the world indoors. I thought if you ran world indoors, you'd be burned out by the time you got to outdoors. Now, amazing stuff. And, you know, you're talking about Inge, comparing Inge Britson to, to Warholm. I think, the, I mean, Inge Britson to Sidney McLaughlin. Lavrone. Lavrone. Bull might be a better analogy. They're in the same event. Bull loves to race. Are they this? She's 22. Who's actually younger? I think think Bull is a couple months young. Yeah, Bull was born February of 2000, and Sydney was born August of 1999. So, you know, Bull loves to compete. He's competing all the time. It's great for the sport. And, you know, you said this. I I do think that's important. Like, you know, and I've written these things in the past. You've got to make the doubles possible because that's built in advertising. You build up the brand. You become a brand world, then you compete in the next meet, and everybody knows who you are, you know? So, fantastic stuff from her. Yeah, and the other thing, David Monty pointed this out on Twitter, why people care about Euros in Europe is just like all the national broadcasting networks, they're showing track, they're showing this stuff live. Now, I don't know exactly if it's on sort of our equivalent of like ABC, CBS, but I kind of feel like it is. Like the BBC had coverage of it. I think most of these other countries... I was looking at some of the audience shares. Rich Perelman had this in his newsletter from earlier this week. Sorry, I'm looking this up. Give me a second. It's a great website if you're into this type of stuff. I think it's called Sports Examiner, right, John? Yes. So, yeah, it's called the Sports Examiner. And he said that the German, the Norwegian national broadcaster, NRK, had a 55.2% audience share for the 5,000 meters on August 16th. That means that more than half of the TVs that were watching something in Norway on that night were watching Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the European Championship final. And in Sweden, the opening night of track and field, which did not feature Mondo Duplantis, had a 35 viewing share. Great Britain on on August 16th, which was the Super Tuesday event with all these terrific finals, 100 meters and that sort of thing. That was a 19.4 audience share. 19? These are massive ratings. That seems, like, in Great Britain, that seems crazy because there's a lot of other stuff. Now, do they are they taking out the, all the people that are now streaming and not watching on TV? Like, is that a separate share? Or is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I don't know. But these are enormous numbers. That's Super Bowl ratings for, for, for Norway. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, this is kind of like a guy that's got his own reality TV show. He's always got the Kim Kardashian aspect of him, plus the performance of, like, Plus, he's royalty. You know, you've been building up the Ingebrigtsen name in Norway for 10 years, 15 years because of the brothers. And then they have a reality show, and he's so damn good. I mean, I'm, look, he moves, he made me 
I actually complained to my wife on vacation. I finally get up there after missing the first eight days of it. And I'm like, all I want to do, honey, is watch track and field on my computer and read about COVID at night. Like, how was that a good thing or a bad thing? I was trying to figure out the COVID. And, and yet again, folks, I know Anthony Fauci is retiring. John doesn't like it when I go into COVID. But what have I only criticized it for? I've only criticized, despite the fact that I think COVID has been overplayed a little bit, I've only criticized Fauci for being not conservative enough on COVID. And this five-day quarantine thing is clearly a fake news because I was testing positive for 10 or 11 days. So if you need, if you get COVID and you need advice, don't listen to Fauci. Email me, Robert, and let's run it, and I'll tell you what to do. I love this, Robert. You go on vacation. All you want to do is watch track and field to read about COVID. When you're supposed to be relaxing. I mean, it is funny, though. Like I went to my parents' house on Sunday for a barbecue, and... We're hanging out. We watched Brighton beat West Ham 2-0, by the way. Great season. Champions League incoming for the Seagulls. But afterwards, we sort of turn on, and I'm like, oh, the Europeans are about to start. And my dad gets into it. He's actually a track fan. So we watched the... I'm like, wait, Whiteman's about to run the 800. And he's like, oh, I know Jay Whiteman now. You know, he knows that he won the World Championships. My dad's a typical... This is the audience we're trying to capture. He did grind. He did fly out to Eugene to go to the World Championships. But track's not like one of the top his very favorite sports. And so, but now he's like, wait, Whiteman's at the Euros. Oh, I'll, I'll watch that. You know, he knows about that. So we watched the race and then we kept on watching the afternoon, but he's getting into it. And I guess another question here, Robert, comparing the crowds to Eugene and Birmingham, which hosted the Commonwealth Games, I guess when we, we've got all the, I don't, we, I don't think I have all the stats on Munich, but I know a few nights there were, 50,000 or more. Certainly on Tuesday and I think the final session on Sunday. Some of the morning sessions, they weren't that full, but this is an enormous stadium. Do we have any big lessons that we can take away from this? I said in our Let's Run newsletter last week that I think Seb Co. and Co. in Monaco need to be studying what exactly is the reason why the attendance was so much better. And obviously you can't get 50,000 in Eugene because it's not a 50,000 seat stadium. But is it just... Eugene is isolated and these European cities are not? Or is it that they are part of these larger pan-sport events like the Commonwealth Games or like the European Championships because they also had like five or six other sports had the European Championships in Munich at the same time? Is it just that? Or is there something else they're doing differently in Germany and Britain? Or is it just they're better track fans in Germany and Britain? Do you have a theory on this, Robert? Well, it's not either or. Your secret show notes said, Robert, just admit that Germany and Britain are better track fans than Americans. You missed the, an obvious one. They, they were held in the major cities. That no, I said that. To, Eugene was isolated. I mean, I mean that's sort of what I would isolated, say. Hard to get to. People yeah. don't like traveling. But I also think the fact that you were having Commonwealths and Europeans killed a lot of the Eugene attendance because there's a core audience of ten or 15,000 people that probably go to every world's. But they're not going to go to... Eugene, when is that hard to get to? When you I don't can, think it's a core audience of ten or 15,000 because we were only getting that much in Eugene, period. And there's certainly some American locals. But the other thing I was thinking about is, look, there's not as much competition. In America, we have the NFL. We have Major League Baseball. We have the NBA. We have hockey. We're now starting to have Major League Soccer. That's like five sports that people pay to go to. Yeah, normal. In Europe, okay, I guess in Europe to to. you have what? You have Soccer. soccer. That's sure. it. You're not so people haven't spent a ton of money. They're looking for something to do. 
they go to the soccer season. That's not going on now. This is like a dead time for them. So they haven't wasted all this money on. Well, that's hockey. not true. Soccer season started. The soccer season was already well underway once Europeans started. And I would say for America, July fifteenth to twenty fourth, that is one of the biggest dead periods on the sporting calendar. NFL hasn't started. Basketball's over. Hockey's over. There is still some baseball, but even the baseball All Star game, I think, was going on around that period. Like that is about as dead as it gets on the American track and f- on the American sporting yeah. calendar, but, uh, which is why I think one other thing with Eugene, we, we, I think people have also thought of, forgot about is remember how hard it was to get into America. You had to have all these COVID tests and blah, blah, blah. Like when you're buying the tickets a year two out, people didn't know what COVID was going to be like. You, you're going to, you're going to make a commitment to buy these, the price we've forgotten the price too. super expensive tickets about the European tickets. were not super expensive. You're going to drop 150, $200 on a ticket times four if you bring the whole family, times four nights when you're not even sure if you're going to get to go. No, I don't think you are. So anyways, I'm sure we can talk about that a lot. I wanted to talk about Mr. Jacobs. That's another thing. I, I know 995, look, that wouldn't even make the U.S. team, would it, John? Not this year. But that wins Europeans. I, I, I offended a bunch of people on the message board by saying, you know, looking at these European finals and stuff and said like, how many of these guys, is this about the equivalent of the NCAA final or a little bit worse? But I've got to admit, I was hearing you guys talk about Jacobs on the podcast when I was gone. And I thought, wow, my opinion on him has totally, totally changed in one year. I mean, last year I just thought he was the most obvious fraud in the history of the sport. And I'm like, he'll never break 10 seconds again. Oh, this is the first time, right? I think I was on record saying he would never break 10 seconds again. And he did. And I didn't like him. Like, look, this sudden improvement doping. Now, hey, he may be doping. We just, we don't, we never really know who's doping. But I'm like a big fan of Marcel Jacobs. He went to World Indoors. He wasn't afraid to take on the best. And they had the translators, and it made it feel like a big event, and he won it. And, okay, World Outdoors wasn't so good. But instead of just shutting it down and waiting till next year, no. Shows up, salvages something meaningful. And I'm just like, wow, this guy – I used to view this guy as just I can, I can change my opinion on people. And I think a lot of people can't look at politics in America. It's like people pick a side and then whatever that side does, they justify. Whereas I'm like the far right and the far left are basically doing the same things with just different names. Oh man. Well, there you go, Robert, folks. you've been veering into politics and some of these hot button issues a little more than usual. Maybe this is just pent up energy from vacation last week. Cause I can't but- talk to my wife about it. She will not. Oh God, <laughs> honey. Talk about Ted Lasso, and that's it. Am I okay? <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, I but I I respect this, Robert, because I do remember a year ago you're like, this guy's a joke. He's a flash in the pan. He'll probably he'll make his millions off being the Olympic champ and never show up again, or he'll get popped or something like that. And I was I didn't think you'd bring this up unprompted that he did break ten seconds again. Now he didn't make the world championship final, which you said would not happen, but it was also due to injury. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't tell if he's doping. No one ever knows that no, for sure. No. Anyone who goes from never breaking 10 seconds to then 9.80, an Olympic champion in the span of a year, there are always going to be question marks about that. But like you said, I do like that he shows up and runs these big meets. He's not afraid to take on Coleman in 60 meters, which isn't an event. Okay, he was the European champion the year before, but... You know, that was Coleman's specialty, and he went down and and brought it. So, yeah, I, I like that he's running, and he just looks so damn smooth when he runs. I mean, it's really a – it's just 
a spectacle to watch him street down the track like that. And it got me to thinking with him and Warholm, like, would things have been different if worlds were happening on the usual schedule? I heard schedule? you say that, and I was like, no, John, look at the times. 995 is not competitive. I, well, 995 is not competitive, but... Neither he, is Warholm's time. Right. For, yeah, he ran 47.13, but these guys were not pushed in these races. Like, I guess Jacobs was like, 0.04 ahead. I, I doubt he was like slowing up, or but I think both of them would have needed a little bit more time. Like maybe if the championships are in September or something, they'd be back to 100%. I don't think they're quite at 100%. And given how good Fred Curley was this year and how good Alessandro Santos was this year, I think they would have needed to be very close to 100% to win those gold medals. But, but it got me, it got me bummed out for what we didn't see in Eugene. But it also got me excited for hopefully what we'll see in Budapest next year if they're all healthy. Because if you get, like, would you be shocked at all if Alessandro Santos is at the level in 2023 that Warholm was in 2021 when he ran 45.9? I think he can get there. And if Warholm is back to 100% in that race, I'm not saying it's going to be better than Tokyo, but we could see a couple guys sub 46. It wouldn't be the craziest thing. Likewise, with Curly and Jacobs, I don't think they're going to be pressuring the world record, but if they're both healthy, and then we get, who knows if, if anyone's going to come on, Mackay Williams, let's seal Tobogo if they take a leap, or Bracey and Bromel, Coleman, if they can get a little better. Yeah, I'm already excited for those world champs next year. Right. And what do we say? We need more meets that matter. We need a Worlds every year, because this would have been no Worlds. Imagine if we would have had a Worlds last year. Then you have a year off. No, you, you got to keep it going. You got to keep the rivalries going. The course, it's actually good that there was an injury because then it makes it more interesting for next year because you're adding more people into the mix. Like with Coleman out last year, we didn't know how Coleman was going to do. But with Jacobs, in terms of the doping, it reminds me a little bit of when Lance came back. I was like convinced Lance was a doper when he was originally competing, but then he retired and came back. I'm like, well, why would he come back if he's dirty? Because he could po- get popped and ruin his legacy. Now, I think he's claimed he didn't dope the second time. I don't believe that. So when you come back, I feel like you're more likely to be clean, although Lance wasn't, obviously. By the way, I think we should have Lance on the podcast. It was just, And the other thing about, about Jacobs is he's kind of the anti-Asafa pal. Like, he is amazing in the big moment. He rises to the occasion. And Asafa pal was the king of the Diamond League circuit, but, but shrank from the big occasion. And I think that is overblown a lot in sports, like, I mean, yeah, he's better than everybody in European, so he wins Europeans. But, you know, he got into the Tokyo final on the, on, the, on time and then runs a PR, right, and, and wins it. He ran so, PRs in the semis and finals at both the Olympics and World Indoors and won gold in both races in European record time. So, yes, he is like that. He also hasn't ro- lost a 100 final since before last year's Olympics. I think Monaco 2021. Now, granted, he hasn't run many of them because of injuries, but... He does have this streak going. All right, John, let's turn to a race that was held right near where I was vacationing. I saw the signs for Falmouth when I was in the midst of my 12-hour drive home, which should have only taken eight hours. Actually, it only took me 10. It took my wife 12. I followed Waze, and it saved me a huge traffic jam. But the Falmouth Road Race was held in Cape Cod, Falmouth Mile as well. I don't know, John, you're a North, you're a New England guy. Everyone's New England seems to be, in, be into this race, but I uh, heard some European complaining. He'd never heard of the race until it was on Let's Run this week, but it is a historic road race. Tell us what happened. Yeah, it's 
pretty great race. I feel like if you're a running fan, I don't know, maybe we we cover we have it we've had on-site coverage for a number of years on letsrun.com. We didn't this year, but yeah. We had our first women's American champion since 2011. It was Kira Damado, who was only 5 weeks removed from the World Championship marathon. She shows up, she runs 36:14 for the 7-mile course. She gets the win over Edna Kiplagat of Kenya, who's now 42 years old and still out there getting second at Falmouth, still grinding away. And Marielle Hall, former Bowman athlete, now training with, I believe, Kurt Benninger in Rhode Island. She was third. On the men's side, Ben Flanagan is quickly becoming the king of Falmouth. He got his third title in the last four editions, 32-25, Took the victory over Bia Simbasa of the USA, 32-32, and David Bat of Kenya, I think, had the lead before Flanagan ran him down, 32-39. So, yeah, I don't know if we're going to make... Like, this is... You know, are there any grand pronouncements to be made from this? I'm not so sure, but Flanagan clearly has something that works for him. It's kind of interesting. He is engaged to... I don't know if he's the current Falmouth race director or the previous the former Falmouth race director, Scott Gelfie, but there, Gelfie's daughter is Flanagan's fiance, so he does have this connection to Falmouth, which is pretty cool. But I was impressed by Kira D'Amato. You know, she got the last-minute call to run this World Championship Marathon. She goes and finishes a pretty creditable eighth place. Then she comes out. She's still in shape. She runs Falmouth and gets 18000 in prize money. That's pretty nice when you include the bonuses for a seven-mile effort. She's, she's in good shape, and then after the race, she says, yeah, I'm going to be running the Berlin Marathon this fall, going for the American record, which she already owns. So that, to me, was almost... I mean, we kind of get... Sometimes we lose track of these actual results and say, oh, what's what's next? But that is kind of the storyline I'm going to be following coming out of this one, is Kira Dubano is pretty fit right now, and she says she's going for the American record in Berlin. Yeah, that's the big takeaway long-term, I think. I mean, we knew she was fit because she ran what? What did she run at Worlds? Two twenty three on like six weeks of training or three weeks of training. I think it was less than that. It was like two weeks of marathon training. <laughs> and so I, I kind of feel like under the Scott Rasko training. By the way, that's another person we should have on the podcast. Um, you're not that far away from a peak. You're kind of always running pretty fast, but mm-hmm. but you know to, to see this. I think with the super shoes, you can recover from the marathons quicker. I mean. Worlds was, what, a month ago? She's already recovered and winning Falmouth, and then now she's going to run another race. I mean, it's five weeks, from it's five weeks, right? Yeah, that's right, because there's only 10 weeks between Worlds and Berlin, and Falmouth was basically right in the middle of it. So I don't understand. Like, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, when I ran a marathon, I was, like, out for not even walking for, like, a week and then would barely start running for another week, yet she's hammering a road race a month later. And then she's going to run another marathon in like five weeks. So there's not a lot of time to get major marathon training in the long runs and whatever, but I don't think she would be doing this if she didn't think she had a good shot at it. She looked good at worlds for the record. She ran. It was two twenty three thirty four for eighth place, Robert, but she is a woman who has raced a lot and who has come back from marathons and other races pretty quickly to put in some impressive performances. I remember last year, Chicago, she finishes fourth place. That's October 10th. Then she's back racing. She runs an 8K in Richmond, 24-47 on November 13th. Then she runs the Manchester Road Race on Thanksgiving, second. And then she runs the U.S. Half Marathon Championships, 
107.55 on December 5th. And I believe the way she told it was sort of after that U.S. Half Marathon Championships is when she kind of really started thinking about that American record in Houston. And they, you know, they think they're planning on doing some sort of spring marathon or they're planning on the World Championship Marathon. But then she's like, no, they weren't planning on World Championship Marathon. She was injury replacement for Molly Seidel. But they kind of fit this thing in. I don't think Houston was always going to be like, oh, this is my, my very long goal. I'm set in stone. This is what I'm going to be doing. I think they just realized, hey, I'm super fit. Let's take advantage of it by running the Houston Marathon. And I think this is sort of, I don't think this is necessarily the same because this might have actually been her longer term goal is maybe she was like, I'm going to do Berlin as my full marathon. And I just happened to do another one in the middle because I was asked to, and I wanted to run for the world for the USA, the world championships. But maybe, maybe this was the target all along. Yeah, that's a great point you made. She basically just ran Chicago, kept racing. And then three months later, she runs two twenty eight in Chicago, right? Yeah, I mean that was that was a hot. She could have done better. She got beat by Sarah Holama Bates in that race, but and I think she wasn't. I think she was injured going into that one too. She had a limited build up because remember she didn't run the Olympic trials on the track. She ran. She qualified back in February, and then she didn't have any races between February and October. So she was kind of her limited build up, and then it was a warm day. That's why she only ran two twenty eight. But then three months later, she runs two nineteen. So this year, she's trying to go from 223 high down to probably 218 high in a span of two months. So, you know, we kind of expected Berlin. David Monty had put a, tw- you know, she wasn't on the American, on New York or Chicago fields. Um, David Monty had put a tweet out that she was going to do it. Then he deleted it, but now she's confirmed it after Falmouth. But you and I were discussing off air and I should have started a message board thread. I started the thread on, do you think she can get the American record? People are kind of 50, 50 on that. I should have started a thread. Because you, you raised this question to me. Why is she doing Berlin and not Chicago? Um, and it's interesting because if she does Chicago, she gets an extra two weeks to train. And she would get a higher appearance fee. So I reached out to an agent, John. I don't think – have I told you what he wrote back? Or she? I could hear she. I don't want to – I just – You did not respond. You didn't tell me what this individual told you, no. So if you run Chicago, you get an extra two weeks of – Training time. You also get a bigger appearance fee. She's the American record holder in the marathon. That's yeah. a pretty big headline. Berlin and she also pay- hasn't run a marathon in the United States with an appearance fee like that. Like she ran the world championships, but there's no appearance fee there. This would be her first like appearance fee marathon as the world record. Rec- uh, sorry, as the American record holder. Correct. And yeah, she chooses Berlin where they're not going to pay someone. They don't pay big appearance fees anyways, just because they don't have as much money. Well, they might have as much money as Chicago, but you know, New York and Boston's, but uh, they're certainly not going to pay an American a ton. So how much do you think an appearance fee for Berlin would be? And what do you think an appearance fee for Chicago would be? For this Berlin? Just, I would guess maybe 10 K for Chicago. I think she could get, well, I'm trying to think I, Chicago made as much as, I would think she could get like a hundred, a hundred to 150 K for Chicago. Well, agent told me 25,000 for Berlin. So Chicago budget is down, but they'd guess seventy five thousand ish. So maybe giving up fifty thousand in guaranteed money, but this person thought that the Nike bonus for the American record would be between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars. And I wonder if that stacks. Sometimes well, she already bo- got that bonus this year. Well, I know, but Jim, she can get it twice. Probably mm. not 
do you, do you get I assume you get it every time. I wonder also if it stacks. Sometimes you get like if you if you win a gold medal, it's the hundred thousand dollar bonus goes Roll into your base. Yeah, yeah. So um you know, well, but no, in, I, in terms in terms of why is she doing it, you and I looked up the weather on Dark Sky. The temperature forecast for the two races on the days that they're whole held is almost identical. The expected temperature is like 56, 58 degrees. But I was wondering now the wind, this is dark sky. I just looked, was like projected wind was like seven or eight miles an hour for Berlin. Wait, you looked at the projected wind for September. No, 25th, I just put the day. I put the, okay. I just put like the average, average day. I assume they're okay. showing me the average because it doesn't. I don't think the, the winds that I'm not sure how much they're trying to predict because it just, it was consistent the whole day, but it said 13 miles an hour for Chicago and it said seven or eight for Berlin. So it was about a five mile an hour difference. And that's significant if you're running a marathon, but I was wondering, is the temperature, any, any Europeans on there? Email me, Robert, let's run again. Is the temperature more consistent in Berlin? Are you less likely to get a super hot day in Berlin than Chicago? You know, that just ruins your chances. Like that, you know, you're standing on the start line. You have no shot of it. Anecdotally, that does feel true. Even last year, Berlin was kind of warm too. Both races were warm. Maybe D'Amato was scared off because she. I mean, first of all, I'm sure if we asked Kira, uh, she's pretty media friendly. She would happily explain to us why she's chosen Berlin over Chicago. So we'll probably do that within the next couple of weeks or so. But. If I had to guess, yeah, maybe you think there's a little more certainty with Berlin. But we've seen, you know, 2017, Berlin was kind of rainy. We thought Kipchoge could get the world record that year. He didn't. 2021, it was warm. But generally over the past few decades, it's been pretty good to run fast. Chicago, I mean, the women's world record was set there in 2019. It's not like they have bad weather days. But yeah, maybe that's one theory. My other thing, Robert, is I just don't think that money means all that much to Kira. And that's not to say like, oh, if you, she's going to turn down you know, free money or this sort of thing. But she ha- didn't have a sponsor for a very long time. She didn't get a sponsor until about age 36 or so. Uh, I believe her husband was, also has, you know, is working. I know they have two kids, but she wasn't going to, I, you know, she was like, oh, I'll take a pro contract. But if, you know, she didn't want to give up her job as a realtor. She's got income coming that way. She just started a running store. Like, I, I just don't think that like a bigger appearance fee is going to be the deciding factor. I think it's probably going to be where do I think I can run the absolute fastest? And she likely chose Berlin over Chicago, even though they can both be pretty fast courses on the right day. One hundred percent. I was going to say that. Like fifty thousand dollars in the long term is not worth it. Your legacy. If you're the American record holder and that sticks for a while. That's important. You just also just to see how fast you can run. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, I don't even, I even should say it, but you and I did talk about this off here. If she wasn't American, we'd be like, wow, this woman's 37. She races a lot. She's improved a ton. How do you explain it? Now, I think she's clean, but you know, I mean, again, everything in our sport, you know, you've got to analyze the data, but yeah, she was away from the sport. She came back into it for the challenge of competing. Like, to see how fast you can go. She thinks it's going to be a better race. She probably had a bad experience. It was hot in Chicago. She wasn't in good shape. Mentally, that may be hard to just get out of your head. Let's go to Berlin. Also, hey, like Kipchoge claims he wants to run all these races and win them. Maybe she just wants to do a European race. Like how many chances are you going to get to do that in your prime? So, you know, I did look it up, John. The What is the date of Chicago, by the way? October 9th. So the record temperature for Berlin on a September 25th is only 78 degrees. So you're not going to get like... 
a super, super hot day for Chicago, October 9th. The record high is 86 degrees. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we've nailed it. The wind is better normally in Berlin than Chicago. It's a little bit better conditions. I mean, women's world record is set in Chicago, what, three of the last four times or something like that? I mean, Let's Run has a history of <coughs> pacing world records in Chicago. Catherine Indereba, myself, Weldon Johnson, then Eclipse Me with Paula Radcliffe, and now um, Bridget Coast Guy. But, you know, better weather, better wind, better temps. Why not? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, Berlin's going to be exciting now. We got... Ellie Kipchoge going, it's all about time. So, you know, if you're there for just head to head slugfest racing, maybe this isn't the race that excites you, but well, I guess Kira, I, you'd have to look at the women's field. It hasn't been announced yet. If she's trying to run two eighteen high, she's going to be in contention for the win. Most likely uh, there, there are more and more two seventeen two eighteen women these days, but a lot of them are going to be running London. So, and New York. So yeah, maybe maybe she's in contention for the win there as well, which would be quite a big deal, an American winning a world marathon major. And you say it's going to be exciting. Let's say we wake up that morning and it's super hot. Even if it's super hot, though, it might not be hot that early. But for some reason, let's say the weather's forecast is terrible. Guess what? This is perfect for Kira. It's like an insurance policy. She could probably just give the race promoters their $25,000 back and say, you know what? I'm going to go to Chicago in three weeks and try it there instead. You, I mean, she probably she might not be invited back after that, but... That actually is a Robert. I think that's a genius. Is if you look at it and you're like, "Wow, this isn't going to line up." It's only, or hell, London's the next week. If you don't even feel you just stay in town, just say, "Actually, I'm going to fly over to London and I'll run their race next week." You know, she can run 218 in London. That's that course is also really fast. We saw Paul Radcliffe run 215 there. So uh, maybe maybe that's the gambit, Robert. Is you say, "Oh, Berlin's the plan," but if things Aren't exactly perfect. We'll just run London or Chicago. Wait, maybe she's going to try to put Shailene Flanagan and Elliot Kipchoge to shame. I mean, Shailene, Shailene, Shailene Flanagan ran all of the majors last year, you know, but not fast. Maybe Kara's going to run them all this fall and hit all the majors, unlike Elliot Kipchoge. Well, she didn't run Tokyo or Boston in the spring, though, so. Now, John, I tried to fly you to Berlin. You said you didn't want to go, but now... I didn't say that. I said it's really hard to... Have you looked at the flights? Like, flying to Berlin from the USA and then, like, London to Berlin. Like, I am going to London. We'll have boots on the ground for the London Marathon this year, which I'm very much looking forward to. It's a great it's almost, to It seemed back. almost easier for us to book the travel just to fly you to Berlin, fly you back, and then fly you to London. That would probably be about as expensive. Like Berlin, it's just hot. There aren't direct flights from Boston. It's just kind of a pain to get there. So we thought it would be nice to have a little two-week European swing for Berlin and London since they're in back-to-back weeks, but I don't think that's going to work out. Instead, I'll have London and Chicago. If we have any journalists on the ground in Germany you want to cover for us, how many times are I going to give out my email? Robert at letsrun.com. All right. Enough Berlin Marathon talk. Let's move on to an article that we just published today, at least the first half of. If you're a Supporters Club member, though, you have full access, instant access, and ar- archived access to all Let's Run, all Let's Run.com content. Join the Supporters Club today, Let's Run.com slash subscribe. Chris Derrick, Jonathan Galt has broken the news that Chris Derrick has retired from the sport. He actually retired in November, but just didn't tell anyone. And I feel like if your career is at a certain stage, you need to have a formal you know, retirement announcement. Like, Weldon and I used to always joke, like, 
oh, I'm retiring from the sport. No, you're not good enough to retire. You just quit. <laughs> but when you're good, you need to have a retirement announcement. You interviewed him a number of months ago when you realized he wasn't racing. You go, hey, you retired. He did a great interview. I loved it. It's up on the homepage. But he said, well, I'll put something up on Instagram. But he never did put anything up on Instagram, John. So did you finally reach right back and just say, hey, do I have permission to publish this? Like, how did that go about behind the scenes? Yeah, I reached out to him a while ago and said, hey, you haven't been racing. Are you still with Bowman? And he said, no, I'm actually retired. I'd be happy to talk to you about it, but I'd like to make the announcement myself if that's all right. I said, no problem. And then, you know, the summer of racing hit. We had like pre-classic. We had NCAAs, USAs, Worlds, all this stuff was happening. So I was like, fine, we can just sit, put this on the back burner. And then when he announces his retirement, we'll just publish it. But he never made the announcement. So yeah, then I reached out. I was like, hey, is it all right if we publish this? He said, fine. So that's how it came together. I was very grateful he took the time because he... Chris has always been a thoughtful guy. He's been one of my favorite guys to interview on the circuit. And it was interesting to hear from him because he had this career. He was a star at Stanford, high school star, won Nike Team Nationals as a team and individual, ran 13.55 on the track his senior year of high school, goes to Stanford, is immediately successful, top 10 at NCAA cross all four years, which is really hard to do. Three times a runner-up at NCAAs, including 2011 as a senior in cross-country. He All three times, Lava the Lang beat him, including those two duels at NCAA indoors in 2012. He turns pro, signs with what quickly became Bowman Track Club, and he runs 1308. Sorry, he was fourth at the Olympic trials also as a senior in 2012. So the thing, a lot of people, I think, unfairly, but that's kind of what happens when you come close, but don't get it is people are going to remember him as second NCAA three times, but never won it fourth and fifth at the Olympic trials, but never made an Olympic team. And, but the real thing with him is like, he was on such a good trajectory through about 2015. You know, he's placing high in the track at USA's. I think he was second in 2014 in the 10,000. He made the world's team in 2013 in the 10,000. And he was top 10 at world cross in 2013 as well. Runs 13.08. Jerry Schumacher tells him, you know, he thinks he's going to break 13 minutes. And then he just gets all these these injuries, Achilles and a bunch of other things. And he's never really healthy the rest of his career. He's kind of struggling along. Gets it together to get fifth at the trials in the 10K in 2016. But he goes to the marathon. His leg starts acting up. And that's really what caused him to retire at the age of 31. So it was interesting because I asked him, you know, were you happy with your career? And he's just sort of like, well, yeah, no. It depends on how you look at it. Like he won the U.S. Cross three times, makes a world championship team, thirteen oh eight and twenty seven thirty one. Th- those a lot of people, like ninety nine percent of people on Let's Run dot com would take that in a heartbeat. It's it's more than almost anyone in the sport ever accomplishes. But when you get that close and you feel like you have the potential for more, it can be a little frustrating. So it was just very interesting to hear his perspective on a number of topics because he's always pretty well informed. Yeah, I, I love the interview. And when you were telling me, I had not read it until yesterday when I was eating it, editing it. And you said, hey, Rob, will you take a look at this, blah, blah, And I said, I will, but I sure hope he doesn't say, Jerry Schumacher was amazing, blah, blah, blah. Because I go, he ran almost as good in college as he did with the pros. And I love Jerry. I think he's one of the best coaches out there. But And you said, no, John, he said that exactly. So one of my favorite parts was, this guy had a top, top high school coach. They win the team title. 
and the individual title. He, by the way, he got second at Foot Lockers, ahead of German Fernandez and behind Michael Fout, and also ran 848 for the two mile. But he's like, yeah, when I finally got to the Jerry's group, my, one of my favorite parts of the, of the interview was, he's like, we the first workout, I was like, it was basically the same workout he did in high school. Like in high school, he did five by thousand at threshold pace. And here in as a pro, he's doing like six by well, mile. I'll, I'll read the excerpt here because it is a funny quote. He said, I like to joke with people a little bit. In high school, we used to do eight by 1200 on the grass at threshold pace. And I finally joined Jerry's group and got to train with this legendary, somewhat secretive coach and find out all the secrets. And it was just like, yeah, we're going to do eight to 10 by mile at threshold pace on the grass. I was like, I knew that in high school. Where are the secrets? I thought that was just really interesting. It was great. By the way, folks, you want me to coach you? I can, I've got the secrets. I've got John Kellogg's secrets. It's all threshold-based stuff like this, too. Are you but, still lobbying for Evan Jager to switch coaches to you? Or did he finishing sixth at Worlds this year? Was that satisfactory enough that he should stick with Jerry Schumacher? No, I think he should switch to me. <laughs> okay. All right. But there was one elephant in the room. Actually, there's two elephants in the room. Maybe three. That's a lot we of elephants. Nowhere in the article out of respect for Chris and no one even on the message board post when I started this, but this needs to be an article of where does he rank on the list of greatest Americans never to have made an, an Olympic team? Or you could say that my second point was greatest Americans to never win an NCAA title as well. I mean, one of the things that most impressed me about his college days was John. I mean, I think you said, you know, 14 time all American, but I looked up this stat four top 10 NCAA cross country finishes second, seventh, third, fifth, and second. I mean, that is so hard to do. So, and then, you know, one of the things in there, he's like, one of my grudges, my senior year at Stanford, I like doubled at the conference meeting. I didn't go up to the head coach. I guess that was, it was Eldrick Floreal. Who was the head coach back then? It must've been Eldrick Floreal. Yeah. And tell him, like, Hey man, I don't want to double. I want to go in on the Olympics. He's like, I, it was just such a fascinating interview. He's like, I feel like if I did that, he would have respected me and let me not double. And then maybe I would have made the Olympic team. But he's like, also part of me was like, I didn't want to do it. Like you're afraid to put a, it puts a lot of pressure on you. Like I'm going to make the Olympic team when you're in college. But so, um, you know, he, he never, did, he, he thought, well, I was a little bit banged up that year at the Olympics. But then four years later, there's a great part of this interview where he's like, yeah, I'm getting ready for the 2016 trials. And I'm thinking, God, I wish I was half as healthy as I was in 2012 when he thought he wasn't healthy in 2012. So it just got banged up at, at the wrong times. So it was just a great interview. It sounds like he's got a good job now. He's doing like some sort of you know financial analyst job. He's basically got the job that the 23-year-old Stanford grads get um, when they when they start there. So, you know, Weldon's John last ties to Professional running with Abdi Robbins retirement are coming to an end. My last ties to college running are coming to an end too, because I talked to Derek on the phone as a recruit after about a 45 minute call. You know, you're not going to come to Cornell. He said, really? Why not? I said, you're going to go to Stanford. Wow. I just knew the money. We weren't going to, he's obviously going to get a big scholarship at Stanford. He also has told me, I asked him other things. He said, well, yeah, but you were talking about being the best in the Ivy league. I wanted to be the best in the country. You're always good at predictions, Robert. We've shown that on the podcast. Thank you. Year. Thank you. But the other, I don't know if I want to say it's an elephant in the room. And this isn't even up on the on the message. This isn't even up because only part one is up. But part two, if you're a Subscribers Club member, is coming out on Thursday. And it's what, what when you asked him about Shelby Houlihan case. And I just need to read this quote, I think, 
in full. I've generally tried to avoid reading about it, which maybe makes me not a particularly good teammate. I just find it extremely hard to hear people say those things about her. And I don't blame anyone for saying it because I'm sure I would think the same thing in that sense. I'm not surprised. I used to read Let's Run. I know how people think, and I certainly know how it looks and how I would think if I didn't know her. And I can't blame anyone for thinking that. I, But I really do strongly believe in her, and I absolutely believe in the team and Jerry and their integrity. I just find it very, very hard to think about. I think that if something like that were to happen to me, I honestly would be suicidal. And then he goes on to talk about how he's a little bit naive, but he thinks like he's really tried to hold himself to a high standard and act in a good way. And he thinks if anything bad happens, he thinks people give him the benefit of the doubt, but he realizes now because of the situation that probably wouldn't matter. I agree because most people don't know Shelby. They don't know her, you know, whatever. Maybe your, your, your hardcore friends back you, but everybody else is just going to be like, well, not everybody else, not Jonathan Galt, but it's going to be like dirty, dirty, dirty. You know, I think it's very, it's gotta be tough. So when I read that quote though, I just, it's like, wow, this is very, very powerful. Um, because he's like me. He knows the cleans team. The, the team is clean. He doesn't 100% know Shelby's clean, but nothing that he's seen from her made him suspect her before this positive test. And here's the thing about Chris's comments. It, I don't know Shelby as well as he does, but this is one of the th- reasons I tend to believe that it's more likely than not in my mind that she's innocent is that all of these Bauman athletes who most of them have been pretty firmly anti-doping, you know, until this Houlihan thing came out. I mean, I think they would still say they're anti-doping, but they support Shelby in this case because they believe she's been wronged. But all of these athletes, they're not abandoning her. They are the ones who spend the most time with her. They know her the best. And they're saying, no, there's no way this happened. Like, I know how our group operates. We know Shelby. This has to be some other thing. She didn't dope intentionally. You know, that's basically all of them are saying. And you would think if they really thought she was doping, they would say, no, she brought a stain on the the Bauman Track Club team. Like, good riddance. Uh, None of them have abandoned her in that way, which I feel like has to count for something. And look, it doesn't count for anything at CAS, clearly. But... That's I, that's something I have put some stock in. It's not the only thing. Obviously, like you have to read the case and everything. And like was said, the science isn't in, in her favor. But I do think that means something. That Jerry Schumacher, who has been pretty anti-doping, like you know, at least behind the scenes, like people you talk to his athletes, they'll say, "Yeah, Jerry really hates dopers." He didn't abandon her. He now chooses to believe her at the risk of being labeled a doper or a doping enabler himself. I mean, to me, that does count for something. And I know there's some people who want to throw their, smash their iPhones as they're listening to this podcast because they don't, they're angry about Jerry and blah, blah, blah. How could he not know what an Android is? I get it if you're not involved, but when I talked to him off the record about this, I was but the same way. You can't talk about stuff when no, they I said the, the same record. thing, though. I said, if someone asked me what an Android is, I said, I don't know. I think it's a drug. I, you know, I don't like the way they handled the, the, the press conference at all. They made it very clear like she ordered a pork burrito and that wasn't the case. They should have just been up front and said, we don't know. We heard that pork is the best option. She happened to eat at a pork truck the night before. What are the odds of that? Maybe that's where she got it. They should have been more ambiguous like that. But if you argue like that, they're unlikely to let you off. But some supporters, club members, John, have some questions for you about that aspect of the interview in the forum. 
I'll let you answer. Oh yeah, that. I do. I I saw that. I will review the tape and get back to that because it is a fair follow up, and I do have an answer for that. But, anyways, must read. It, part one is up now. Part two will come out on Thursday. It'll be only be, be be free for maybe two more days after on Thursday, so Thursday and Friday. Then it's gonna probably go back behind the paywall. So join the supporters club today. Let's slash subscribe. All right, Friday, we're gonna have. First post-European Diamond League. It's in Lausanne. We've got some good matchups. Right when this meets over, we will do our Friday 15 bonus podcast live. If you can't catch it live, you'll get it in your podcast feed, again, if you're an SC member. But what are you most looking forward to, John? Tell people what's... I think I'm looking forward to the sprints the most because Lausanne, quietly, is a very fast track for sprinting. Uh, certainly with regards to two of the athletes I'll be paying the closest attention to because we have the Jamaican trio who swept the Olympics and the Worlds this year in the 100 lost in the 100 meters, Shelly and Fraser Price, Sharika Jackson, and Elaine Thompson, hurrah. They're all running the 100 here in Lausanne. If you remember, Lausanne is where Shelly and Fraser Price ran her PB of 10.60 last year. She's coming off that 10.62 in Monaco. I think she can go 10.5, which is something only... Elaine Thompson Hurrah is the only other athlete ever to run in the 10 fives. And of course we have Flojo in the 10 fours. So I'm going to be watching that one. And then Noah Lyles before this year, his personal best was also from Lausanne in 2019 of 19.50. He's running the 200. I love this. Arian Knighton and Michael Norman also in there again. So we have the rematch from Monaco. I want to see how fast Lyles can go. Can he beat that 19.31? Can he get in the 19.2s? Like, that's, I'm pretty pumped for those. And then we have some decent... Dis- I mean, look, Ingebrigtsen's running the 1500. I'm always going to watch a race with Ingebrigtsen in it. Timothy Chariot, Mario Garcia-Romo, Josh Carr, Abel Kipsang, Oli Hoare all in there. And then the 3000, Safan Hassan, Constance Klosterhalven, Laura Muir, and then from an American's perspective, Alicia Monson and Elise Cranny. So... Those are the races. I guess we should mention the men's steeple as well. Evan Jager going over to run a diamond league for the first I mean, John, time. John, you're killing John. You, you got me all excited with these sprints. Okay. I mean, the sp- look, that, all right. My, yeah. The answer is the sprints. That's what we're not that far off the world record here. 10, six, one to 10, 10, six, oh, to 10, four, nine. Right. Yeah. Get a friendly wind. And we're not that far off from 1931 to 1919. Right. Right. Uh, God, that would be crazy. I really want to see Shelly and Fraser price run in the 10 fives, but then we've got Jager in the steeplechase. I, and again, it's like Marcel Jacobs. I've got to admit when I was wrong, I was like watching, you know, I was like watching Evan Jager run, you know, 810 is not going to do it for me. But now I'm all excited to try to watch him run 810. That's so, NACAC champion Evan Jager, yes. by the way, Robert. And then we have a women's 3000, at least Cranny, Stefan Hassan. I mean, I think Stefan Hassan's really on the upswing here. Coco, Laura Muir, Alicia Monson. Um, that's exciting. And this 1500, like, I'm excited because we get Ingebrigtsen versus Chariot. We're going to see um, Ollie Hoare, too. And it, it, hopefully he's, you know, is he on the upswing again after Commonwealth? Josh Kerr, I thought he called it a season. I'm shocked to see him on the start list. I'm assuming he's not actually going to run, but maybe he just was sick or something and realized that's why he was last at Commonwealth. He got better. I mean, that's well, kind I of think he was sick at Commonwealth. He what? He was sick at Commonwealth. Oh, I'm I pretty sure that. that was the case. Okay. And then. You know, we've got a um, Grand Hallway. I think whenever he runs, you've got to be sort of on the lookout for a world record. Hasn't really hit a fast one this year. I, I just, 
he's someone I would like to see just run every single race in Europe for a year. I think he needs to run more often. Like, I don't know. I'm a big fan, but I, I would like to see him get that world record eventually. And speaking of 110 hurdles, folks, I have some bad news for you. I know everyone's into highlights of preseason football games. Devin Allen did catch like a 50-plus yard touchdown pass for the Philadelphia Eagles. It's his first catch of the preseason. It looked good. But nowadays, preseason football, this is American football for people overseas. Like Everyone's afraid that they're going to get hurt or they don't want to show the plays they're going to run. So they don't play any of their good players in the preseason games anymore. So they play like the third and fourth stringers. So everyone was excited that he caught the touchdown pass. But I did some research last night, and I found this guy. My favorite writer for NBC Sports Philadelphia because he's a let's run reader. Yes, he's a let's run reader. What did he call say, say to us about John when he referred to let's run earlier? Greatest sight ever to spring forth from the mind of man. Like must must see must see bigger than Google. I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but all of those are pretty reasonable options, right? Here's what he wrote, Mister Frank on. July 20th was Devin Allen cheated out of running in the hurdles final at the world athletics championships. The most prominent running site in the country believes so. That's what he called us, John, the most prominent running website in the country. And then he says in a piece written by let run.com co-founder, Robert Johnson, who he falsely accused me of being the coach at Oregon. I've never been fired from a college job, folks. Please don't get me confused with that other Robert Johnson. Uh, Robert, may I interject Robert Johnson? The other one wasn't officially fired. His contract expired just to, Correct that for the record. But anyways, Mr. Frank has an article out after the, after that touchdown saying that Devin Allen rarely gets reps in practice and isn't making the 53-man roster. So looks like Weldon Johnson, who predicted a practice squad spot for him, is correct. Weldon was looking that up in the summer. Um, Devin Allen has a quote where he says, to be honest, the first couple of weeks, you watch one of those military movies, the grenade goes off, and everyone's like stunned. Their head's ringing. So it was definitely an adjustment for him. It sounds like he's catching his footing. But Paul Doyle, the super agent, Allen's agent, says, no, man, this guy's got it. He's got something special. He will make the team. But if you're not getting the reps, it might be hard. So maybe he'll eventually get a midseason call-up. Practice squad would be a huge accomplishment. Because, again, he hasn't played football for six years. So if he actually gets the chance to practice it every week and actually he's getting reps with the practice squad, that could be a part of the NFL one day. I still think it's unlikely he ever plays an NFL game. But... Getting on the practice squad and he actually gets to play football every day, that would be a big, a big... And he did look pretty great on that touchdown catch, Robert. I know it was against backups or whatever, but you can see that's the sort of... That's the dream scenario for Devin Allen, right? Is he has that speed and you can just get in behind the top of the defense. Like, that's kind of what Marquise Goodwin does in his role. You know, he's been in the NFL for a long time now. Is just the speed guy who takes the top of the defense. So... Before we leave, John, I think you should <clears throat> we should end with our Where Your Dreams Become Reality segment. It used to be the motto of the website. Oftentimes I joke that your dreams don't quite become reality. They almost do. But one of my favorite this also combines with one of my favorite phrases, talent does not go away. Can you please tell everyone about the wonderful story of the unknown Norwegian, Zerai Mazingi? Yeah, so I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but it's a different one, a difficult one to pronounce. And he was the guy, he was leading the European 10,000 final with a lap to go. I'm watching this race. I was watching it with my 
family. And when everyone's lining up on the start line, I'm looking at them. There are some names I don't recognize, and they're sort of asking for predictions. I'm like, oh, Yabamahan uh, Kripa from from Italy, he's going to win this race because he had medaled in the 5,000 earlier in the championships, and I knew he was a talented runner. I was like, this guy is the best guy in the field. He's probably going to win, and maybe second place goes to Jimmy Gressier or something like that. And the race is going on, and Kripa's towards the front, but then with a couple laps to go, he starts getting dropped. And the guy in the lead is this one, this runner from Norway who I've never heard of before, Zere Kabram Meznegi. And he's 36 years old. I don't know anything about this guy. I'm like, how can he be 36 and he's about to win the European Championships? I don't know anything about him. He does get out kicked. Kripa, very smart race, runs him down. And Meznegi holds on for silver in a personal best of 2746. Kripper, also gold in 2746. And I look him off afterwards. I'm like, he's 36 years old. The first results you see for him on his athletics profiles are from 2011. And he ran 1327 in age 12, 26 in 2012. That's still kind of late to be starting on a career, but I'm like, okay. 20, 1327 in 2012. So clearly he's talented, but then he doesn't have any results at all until 2016. He starts running a little faster, 1337, 2804, and 2020. Now he's down to 2746 and the silver Euros. So I'm doing a little deep dive on him. I'm like, what's his story? Well, he came to Norway in 2012 as a refugee from Eritrea and got taken in by a local family. And then he's, he's, but he's still like, as of last year, he was still considering giving up to become a taxi driver, apparently. So. Then I reached out to Jordan Donnelly, who is Let's Run Podcast listener, and he's also with On, who is his sponsor. And he mentioned, you know, he had a big breakthrough at the Berlin Half Marathon, I think, last year. He runs 60 flat, and they signed him. He started doing altitude training in St. Moritz, which he hadn't really gotten to do since moving to Norway. And that has helped him sort of make another break they said after his race his whole norwegian family were there and it's pretty emotional for them all so pretty great story to see him get the silver medal uh and almost held on, hung on for the gold but he made what i thought was going to just be Kripa sort of pantsing everyone to to a very exciting interesting race so um good stuff there so john that gives me another story idea the greatest americans never to win ncaa title greatest americans never to make an win an olympic team and the greatest runners that are now taxi drivers, I forgot. I was in a lift a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and my driver was Ethiopian. He was telling me that, like, I think a world champion is, is driving an Uber here. Or maybe the world champion's wife. I knew that. I'd heard some story, like, world champion's husband was, like, an Uber driver here in the D.C. But I don't have the names for you, John. My, my friend is well, Ethiopian. He lives here, so we can I know get to the bottom of this. Tesfai Jifar, who won the New York City Marathon in 2001, he was driving a cab a few years ago. So there is some competition in this area. And I don't think that Mezengi actually... I'm sorry for butchering his name. Maybe I should just say Kabram. I don't think he actually took the step of driving a cab. It sounded like something. it was something he was going to think about doing. All right, Robert. Well, I think that Wait. is going to about do it for the week in running. I was going to say that, but like you breaking wanted- news. You said you wanted to talk about these standards 
coming out, what impact they're going to have. So in case you're out of the loop, I mean, you know, the A standards with super shoes have gotten a little bit faster. It's now for most events, 144.7, 334.2, 1307, 2710, 209.40, 159.8, 1450, So I don't know. You seem to, you wanted my opinion on it. I don't really think it's going to change that much. I mean, they're trying to get 50% from world ranking. As long as people honor, honor the world ranking, that'll be fine. But I just think that it's, I really think that they need to do it by a quota system where the country gets the standards. If you get three and you have a trials race, you can send any three. Like there's no way that somebody can finish in the top three at the U S championships an event where we already have three people going that they would embarrass themselves and not be worthy of a world championship. Track and field needs more meets the matter. So assign the bids to the country and then let them hand them out. If you want to have the caveat that it has to be a trials race, if you're, if you're going to hand it out to a random person, that's fine. As long as it's a trials race, they should be allowed to do it. I get it. You don't want to send the prime minister's son for a free paid trip, but otherwise it shouldn't matter. But you know, you seem to be more up in arms about this than me. And then I was reading, there's this article in the Kenyan paper, athletics head coach, Julius Kerwa was just very despondent and very upset that the men's 10,000 standard is 2710. And his quote is, it will simply discourage many athletes. And that isn't growing the sport. It will continue to push many to road racing. Now, I don't know why he he's so up in arms because, well, let me rephrase that. I was kind of surprised by that, but then I thought about it. There's still no altitude conversion, right? This is absolutely insane. There has to be an altitude conversion for the Kenyans because there's a lot of like 18, 19, 20-year-old Kenyans that don't have the money to fly over, leave Kenya, fly to Europe, and run at 10,000 at sea level. So if some dude runs 27 Hell, if they break 28 minutes in altitude, they're good to go. If they win the Kenyan trials, it can break 28. The standard should be 28 minutes in Kenya, period. If you break 28, you're good to go, right? Yeah, I think somewhere around that is probably fair. But also, they're talking about always pushing more people to roads. But now you can qualify for the roads. So you're going to actually have more Kenyans. Well, I don't know if you get more Kenyans because the standard is higher. But that is an area where if that had been the case for 2022, Kibo Kandie, the Kenyan champion would oh, have been able it. to run at worlds because oh, he had the road race standard. And plus the road races count for your, your ranking. Yeah. Okay. So then I'm fine with it. Look, they're going to send in the 10 K you're still going to need to run a fast time. It doesn't really matter if it's 27. What was it before? 25, 28 or 27, 10. You better just run as fast as you can at one point in the year. Um, but it's just kind of a little bit disconcerting, I guess, because you don't know for sure. But anyways, it's not a big deal to me. I just, the standards I think are not good for the sport. I wish there was some way just to assign it to the countries, but Hey, it is what it is. Well, my worry, you had the same take that Weldon had on basically on the let's run.com supporters club podcast from last week is about, you know, giving them a quota or quota for a trials race, that sort of thing. I just worry that we're going to have more races that were like USA's this year in the men's 1500, where, Suddenly, only a few people in the race have the standard. And if they don't finish one, two, three, then no one really knows who's going. And you've got to take more time and it kills, to figure it, it out. It kills the whole, the whole excitement and simplicity of that. Means. Exactly. And it really bothers me. The U.S. I mean, I, well, maybe the marathon guy claimed they are doing it. Like, 
if I was USATF, I would make it my number one priority. People are like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's only the diehards that care about it. No, it's very simple. It's hard for the average. The average person turns on the fans and has to hear about standards and times and places. No, they just want to see top three. It's very simple. It's very important. I know most countries don't have this thing where it's top three to go. We're, we're pretty much the only country that does that, maybe Ethiopia occasionally in some of these events. But anyways, it's been fun to be back, John. See you on Friday after Lausanne.